Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Good. My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors on staff. If you're new with us, we want to welcome you. If you're watching online, just tuning in, we want to say hello to you as well. Although, we have seats for you, so come and join us. No big whoop. Uh, some of you are wondering, you know, we talked last week about the Thanksgiving offering that we were taking in preparation for Christmas. We're going to receive that offering at the end of the sermon this morning, so that's coming in a few minutes, a separate offering from the one we took at the beginning. Just be prepared for that. We'll get to it in a little bit. This morning, we turn our attention to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 21, in our continuing study uh, called Love and Trouble, an ongoing study of the book of John. And uh, this is an interesting text because it's a text, it's one of several that I remember very well from when I was a child. You know, I remember this story and kind of feeling freaked out by this story. It's a story that kind of scared me a little. You know, there's a few, uh, there's a few Bible passages that are a little bit scary to kids. And this was one because it always sort of was taught in this way of like, hey, you know what? Most of the time Jesus seems meek and mild. You know, he's really nice and he invites children to come and sit with him, but occasionally he gets really ticked off and he makes a whip and then he chases you around with it, so don't make him mad, right? And that was a, that was a story that I found personally a little like easy to relate to because I grew up uh, as a son of my mother. And so, you know, when it says like in the King James Version, it says he fashioned a scourge. Well, I knew exactly what that meant. Fashion, my, my mom was really good at that, right? She was super good at fashioning a scourge. I remember one time we were having lunch at, uh, at Furs Cafeteria in the Valley West Mall. I grew up in Glendale, Arizona, and we went to Furs Cafeteria for lunch every Sunday after church. And we were having lunch at Furs, and I, don't, I was like three. I don't remember what I did wrong. I did something wrong. And uh, in the middle of lunch, my mom grabs my hand, she picks me up, and she marches me out into the mall. And I was kind of happy initially because that meant I didn't have to finish my lunch, you know, which is sort of good because I didn't want to eat all of it. Uh, and she takes me out to the middle of the mall, and then we turn right. Now, this was a good indicator for for me because the toy store at Valley West Mall was to the right. So you come out of Furs and you turn right, that's where the toy store was, and I always wanted to go to the toy store. So here's my mom, she takes me by the hand, she's kind of marching me through the mall, and we, she, you guys are not going to believe this, I didn't believe it at the time, she takes me to the toy store, even though she's upset, and I'm like, this is the best ever, I didn't have to finish my lunch, and now we're going to the toy store, we go into the toy store, she knows exactly what she's looking for, she walks straight down this one particular aisle, and she pulls off the shelf uh, one of these, you know what that is? Well, this is called the, uh, the high flyer paddle ball. And uh, I was pretty excited. I, I didn't own one of these, but my mom decided to buy me one on this particular day. And so she, uh, I think it was like two bucks. She pulls this off the shelf. We go up to the counter. The guy there, you know, taking the money, she, uh, she pays him for it. And I'm waiting to receive it. My mom, we don't even leave the toy store. She rips the top off like that, right? She pulls the thing out. And I, I'm like, oh, this is going to be, I've never tried one of these, but I, I'm excited to give it a go. I'm, just, I'm not very good at it still. Oh, that's all right. I got two. Uh, anyway, my, my mom doesn't even give me a chance to do that. She rips the package open. She pulls this thing out. And then looking right at the clerk, I'm standing down here. She rips the ball off and she throws it. And then she spakes me in the toy store, right? Uh, this does not do justice to, this is like ball soap. This is not, this would act, this might be soothing actually. Back in the day. Uh, back in the day, these were a little more hardy, and I just remembered the shock and terror on the face of the toy store clerk as my mom paddled me. Uh, I was both disciplined that day as my mom very carefully crafted a scourge, and it also kind of deterred me from wanting to go to the toy store anymore, you know what I'm saying? 
So it had kind of a double value. Uh, she was with us all week, and I told her on Thanksgiving that I was going to tell this story, and that it was probably nice for her. She was going home. She went home yesterday, so she didn't have to sit here and listen to it. But um, whenever we read here in John chapter 2 about Jesus in verse 15, making a whip of cords, as a kid, I, I understood, like, you can sort of spank somebody with whatever's at hand, right? Um, Jesus would have been able to craft this whip out of the cords and the, and the ropes that were in the temple court because of the presence of these animals. So following from what we studied last week, the miracle at the wedding in Cana, Jesus takes a couple of days with his family and his disciples, and then they move up to Jerusalem. It's the Passover season. They move up to Jerusalem together, and when they get to the temple, uh, that's where this sort of takes over. It says in 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. I remember hearing this story as a kid, and I remember the Sunday school teacher doing one of a couple of things, sometimes using it as a warning, don't make Jesus angry, because when Jesus gets angry, this is what happens, he comes and he chases you out. Let me just say that if that's your reading or your understanding of this text, you've misread it. Jesus is not angry at the people in this text. He's not fashioning a whip to punish sinners. If he was, if Jesus was interested in fashioning a whip to punish sinners, he would never stop whipping people, right? This text says nothing about the morality of what they're doing. We know uh, from the Synoptic Gospels, there's, there's an account, by the way, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of the cleansing of the temple as well, although instead of happening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. Theologians are kind of divided on whether or not they're describing the same event or whether or not it's two separate events. I think because of the distinction and the fact that it shows up here at the beginning, I think we're actually talking about two different temple cleansings, one that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one that happens at the end. Regardless, what happens here is described in a different way. In the, in the Mark, Matthew, and Luke texts, uh, Jesus does refer to the merchants and the money changers as robbers. He says, do not make my father's house a den of robbers or a den of thieves. In this text, he does not refer to them as thieves or as robbers. He just chases them out. He turns over the tables. He dumps out the money, Right? We see Jesus definitely frustrated and definitely angry, but we don't see him angry and punishing sinners here. Uh, If he were, he would never stop whipping people. Everybody in proximity, including his disciples and his family, are sinners. This isn't about Jesus punishing individuals. It's not frustration with the morality of what they do, because this text, if you look closely at it, doesn't say anything about them stealing or cheating. It has nothing to do with that. You've probably heard over time people saying, well, Jesus is mad here because they were extorting money from the people. Well, they may have been extorting money from the people, but John 2 doesn't say that. They may have been charging uh, abnormally high prices, but John 2 doesn't say that. It doesn't say that Jesus is upset about the morality of their business. It says to us that Jesus is frustrated and angry about the location of their business. And that's an important distinction. Jesus chases out the oxen and the sheep. He chases out the money changers, turns over their tables. Verse 16, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His frustration is that the temple was meant for a very specific purpose. The temple was meant to be an intersection of God and man. It was meant to be a place of prayer. It was meant to be a place of purity and worship, a place where people could reflect upon who God was. And what had happened is that these merchants and these money changers had come in to provide a convenience for travelers, but it didn't belong in that space. 
The place of worship was not meant for worship and dot, 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 anything else. It wasn't meant to be a place of divided purpose. It was meant to be a place of singular purpose. They had moved the money changers and the animals. They brought all that stuff into the temple court previously it had been kept at the Mount of Olives and they'd moved it over, presumably for convenience. They'd moved it over to increase their profits, presumably. They'd moved it over as a potential snub to the Gentiles because this is the only place the Gentiles could come to worship the Lord. And so even in the, in the Mark account, in Mark 11, we'll hear Jesus say, uh, this is meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. And some have said that's an indicator that Jesus is frustrated that they've polluted the one place where non-Jewish people could come to worship Yahweh, right? But what we see here is is that this was meant to be preserved. They've, They've come because of convenience, increased profit, maybe a snub to the Gentiles. As a side note, it's probably worth us stopping for a second and thinking about the places in our own lives and in our own worship where we become sidetracked by convenience, Right? What's convenient and comfortable, what's profitable, what serves our pride, these things can sometimes creep in and they distort the purity of our worship. They distort the purity of our focus upon God. Sometimes because it's convenient, we allow ourselves to become distracted by other things or because it's comfortable or because it's our preference. We talk about that a lot. Sometimes our preference becomes a a distraction to our focus upon God. Jesus comes in and he, and he takes the time to put together a whip. By the way, that, that takes a little bit of time. Some focus. This isn't something he just snaps and starts to rage. He takes the time to fashion a whip. And then he chases these people out and says, this is meant to be my father's house. It's not meant to be a house of trade. The word that's translated trade there could also be translated uh, emporium or market. It's not meant to be a place of commerce or exchange. It's not meant to be a place where exchange is made. It's not meant to be a place of trade. And that's really telling. That Jesus isn't frustrated about what they're doing. He's frustrated about where they're doing it. And in fact, he tells them, take your pigeon somewhere else. Do what you're doing in another place, but not here. Why? Because it says, and the disciples realized, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written. It's written, by the way, in Psalm 69, verse 9. If you're journaling or you're trying to keep some cross-referencing here, in Psalm 69, 9, David, the psalmist, talks about the reproach that has come upon him because of his zeal for the house of God. The disciples in this moment remember this messianic prophecy in the Psalm of David about the Messiah being zealous. Zeal essentially means burning with passion, on fire with passion. That he's zealous for the house of God. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That word in the King James Version, I think the word there that's translated consume is translated will eat me up, right? It will devour me. A zeal for God's house consumes him, and literally, a passion for God's house consumes Jesus to death in some ways, because when the chief priests and the scribes, when the Pharisees look to bring their, their accusations against Jesus in Matthew 26, they will use what he's about to say to them as part of their accusation. He's going to say to them, destroy the temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. If you look at Matthew 26, when they're bringing accusations against Jesus to crucify him, one of their accusations is, he He said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. For the record, that is not what he said. He suggests in John chapter 2 that they destroy it and that he would rebuild it. But Jesus is consumed with a passion to keep the temple pure, to keep the place of worship pure. It's not a place that's meant for communing with God and anything else. It's meant to be a place of prayer and worship 
that is pure. And so Jesus makes this whip and he chases these people out. Now look at what happens next. He chases them out. The disciples in 17 remember what has been said about the Messiah. Verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is an interesting response from them, by the way. They don't say, hey, don't do that. Or hey, we aren't making this into a marketplace. We're not making it into a place of commerce. We're not making it into a place of trade. They, they don't even take the time to sort of reflect upon the accusation that Jesus has made. Right? The Jews don't have anything to say about the claim he's made, about them turning the temple into a place of trade. Instead, they say, what sign will you show us to prove that you have this authority? Well, what is it they're doing? They're, they're essentially engaging in trade of a different kind, right? Jesus has just said, this place isn't about exchange. It's not about trade. And now the Jewish leaders will look at him and say, we have some power. We have some authority. What miraculous sign can you do to prove to us, what can we exchange here, that you also have authority? But Jesus has just said, I'm not interested in trade. He looks at them in, request, in their request for a miraculous sign, and this is what he offers them. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy the temple. The temple is the heart and soul of Jewish worship. I mean, it is their treasure above all else. It is a precious place. The idea of them destroying the temple is ludicrous. But Jesus says, you want a sign? Destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They look at him. In verse 20, the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? We've taken 46 years to get it to this point and you're gonna build it in three days. Really, that's who you are. John, giving us an aside here, the author, he tells us in 21, he wasn't speaking about that physical place. It says when he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John here giving us a little insider information, he lets us know. Remember, by the way, the entire book of John, if we look at John 20, the writer says, I'm writing this whole thing that you would know who Jesus is and believe in him. So across the way and throughout the text, we see John pointing out places where belief occurred. We saw that last week with the miracle of Cana when he turns water into wine and it says his disciples believed. Here's another account where Jesus does something spectacular and belief is the byproduct. But John giving us some insider information says at the time when Jesus made the whip and he chased all the people out, he said this thing about the temple being destroyed and raised in three days. We didn't get it then, but listen, down the road when he rose from the dead, then the light bulb came on above our heads and we remembered what he had said about raising the temple and it all clicked together for us and we realized he wasn't talking about that building, he was talking about his own body, right? And we believed, we remembered what he had said to those leaders when they accused him, when they asked him their question. He said, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up. Now, here's the deal for us this morning and the time we have. We have to look very closely at what's happening because Jesus, in what he declares in this text and what he does in the temple, is not just making a literal claim. Literally, Jesus could have raised the temple from the rubble had they destroyed it, right? He has the power to raise it in three days even though it took them 46 years. But on another level, literally, he's pointing to the fact that he will die on the cross, that he will take the sins of mankind upon himself, that he will shed his blood and be buried dead, but will rise again in three days and create a whole new way of doing things. 
So Jesus looks at them and says, destroy this temple, which they will. They will accuse him, and they will have him killed. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up. He's talking literally, but he's also talking uh, typologically. He's talking about himself. The temple is a type of himself. You see, Jesus himself is the place where man and God meet. In the past, God and man would meet in the tabernacle or they would meet in the tent, right? We talked about that when we were studying Hebrews. Then they have this temple and there's the place of the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is said to reside and men could draw near to that. It's the place of intersection between God and man. But with the resurrection of Christ, with his death and resurrection, there is no more need for the temple. Remember, the curtain was torn. Jesus becomes the place of intersection between God and man. He is the temple. That's why in, um, in Matthew 12, when he's being accused of doing things on the Sabbath, Jesus himself will say, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, right? Something greater than the temple is here. It's called Jesus. Jesus looks at them and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He's talking about his own body as a temple, But the reality is, too, on a whole other level, that these Jewish leaders have turned the place of God's pure worship into a place of trade, a place of market, a place of commerce. And so in many ways, they are destroying it. He looks at them and says, destroy it, and I'll rebuild it in three days. The temple is on its way out. In fact, Jesus will abandon the temple at the end of his ministry. We see in Matthew 23... It's tragic, actually. It's a heartbreaking passage. Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says... Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is talking about the temple. The temple, the place where God and man could meet where prayers could be offered and worship would occur, has been left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 24, 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, and he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is inaugurating a new temple and he declares it in John chapter two. He's saying this particular place where man has come to meet with God has been corrupted. In fact, when he says, uh, when he says destroy this temple, the word that's translated destroy could be the word dissolve or crumble apart, loosen, right? You've destroyed this temple, but I will raise up a new one. The new temple is the very body of Christ. He is the place where we commune with God. He is the place where we meet with God. And not only is he himself the temple, but the scriptures go on to say that we ourselves also become the temple of his spirit, that we become a temple of God, not just individually, but we corporately become the temple of God. So the temptation for us is to look at a text like this and go, oh, Jesus makes this whip, and he comes into the temple, and he starts to crack it and chase all these animals out, and he says, don't make my house a house of trade. So how do we apply it this morning? Well, the way we apply it is we make sure that nobody ever comes into this building and sells books in here, right? Make sure nobody ever comes to this building and tries to sell their, you know, whatever, their merchandise. We don't want to turn this into a house of trade. Listen, this room, my friends, is not a temple, There is a reason why outside the doors it does not say sanctuary. This room is not the sanctuary of God. This is not the place you come to draw near to God. We have a sanctuary, and it's here. And it's here in us. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives within us. We are the temple, and together in our community, we are a house being built as living stones for God to reside in. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. How do we apply John 2, 13 through 21? It's not by looking at this room because this room is not the church. This room is where the church meets. And when we do baptisms at the beach, guess what? The church meets at the beach. And when we do an Easter sunrise service up at Summit House at their pavilion, the church is there. Wherever we are gathered in community, that is the living house where God's spirit resides in us individually and in us corporately. It's not about a building. This is just a gathering space. So when we apply the text, we don't go, I don't sell books in here. I mean, we're not gonna sell books in here, but that's not the point. This isn't the sanctuary. The sanctuary is here and it's here. So how do we apply what Jesus has done? He walks in and he says, don't make the temple a place of trade, a place of exchange. Well, how often in our lives, these temples, how often have we made our pursuit of God about exchange? How often have we made it about profit? How often have we made it about convenience and comfortability? How often have we made it about preference? The temple of God is not a place for exchange. We couldn't pay God enough for redemption if we were going to try and pay him. All of our works are like filthy rags. Titus says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace we are saved. Listen, the temple of God is not a place for exchange or trade. It's not a place for commerce. We don't buy anything from God and he's not selling anything. The temple of God, Jesus is saying in John 2, is a place for the giving and receiving of gifts. And it is by his grace that we are saved. We come to the temple to draw near to him, to receive from him what he gives us freely, not because we've earned it, not because we paid for it, not because we ever could, but because of his great love for us. And Jesus wants to keep that experience pure. No trading in here. No little bit for God and a little bit for you. There's no exchange. There's no commerce. It's meant to be a place of worship where gifts are received from God and then sacrifices of praise are returned to God, not because they purchased anything for us. We don't worship God. We don't give of our tithes and offerings. We, we don't sing his praise because we want to get something from him. We worship him and sacrifice because he's given us everything already. And so we have to listen for the whip crack of the Lord Jesus this morning. We have to listen for the crack of the whip over the top of our heads to say, what are the places in this temple and in this temple where it's become a place of exchange and it was meant to be a place for the giving and receiving of gifts and the return of sacrifices in honor of him? 
What are the places where I've come because I want to get something from God? Or I'm hoping that if I show up for the service or if I put money in the offering plate, he'll do what I'm asking him to do. That's trade. That's exchange. Things in the temple of God are not meant to be bought and sold. They can't be. They're meant to be received. And they're meant to be returned freely. My heart of gratitude. So you and I, we listen. We listen for the whip crack over the top of our heads. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says... It is a time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We have to carefully craft the scourge and drive the commerce out of our temple, our individual temples and our corporate temples. We've got to get rid of the trade, the exchange that happens there, and preserve the temple of the Holy Spirit within us and within us as a place for the giving and receiving of gifts alone. This temple is a place to receive grace and to offer sacrifices of worship. No trade, but gifts given and received between a glorious God and his worshiping creation. I love back to John chapter two when it says, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Listen, when, when John recognized that he was speaking about the temple of his body, it, it means two things again. It means both his physical body that would be raised from the dead that would walk out of the tomb. But Jesus, just like last week when he's looking past the wine to the blood that the people need, the purity in his blood, this week he's looking past this temple to this temple to this temple. And he says, destroy all of this and I'll raise it up in three days. The zeal that Jesus has for his house is a zeal for us. It's a burning passion for us, for our purity in worship that literally consumed him to death. Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. A messianic psalm looking ahead to a Jesus who would give up his life to preserve for us pure and unadulterated worship where no commerce or exchange or trade creeps in. He said it, but he was talking about his body. We are his body. 